Welcome to the IFV podcast series. Today's podcast is a distinguished visitor lecture and features Cameron Scadding from Source Certain International. Cameron Scadding is a forensic and analytical chemist by training, an expert in his discipline with extensive complex investigation experience. His lecture, recorded on Wednesday the 14th of March, is entitled Transparency in the Agri-Food Value Chain. We hope you enjoy this IFE Distinguished Visitor Lecture. Just um, by way, just to add to the introduction, I am the son of a wheat and sheep farmer. I am deeply passionate about agri-food. Not passionate enough to ever be a farmer, <laughs> so never ever wanted to go back and do that. What I, I actually left the farm, went away to school, typical story. You know, I had, a, I had these aspirations to catch bad guys. Forensics was always on my radar, and so that's what I went and did. I discovered, not quite sure why it was a learning experience for me, but I learned that um, there's actually not that many jobs for forensic scientists. So I then um, founded a business called TSW Analytical in 2006, and we actually established certainly one of the early, but now probably one of the biggest um, private forensic service businesses in the country. I've spent the better part of 15 years inside supply chain as a forensic investigator, usually reacting after something awful happens. So counterfeit product causes harm, gold diverted from conflict areas into legitimate supply chains, stolen gold, tried to be banked, that type of thing. So in a way, I've kind of done the full circle. I've kind of come all the way back to agri-food and, and, and I'm focused mostly around the food chain and the integrity of the food chain. And today's seminar, I'm, I'm, it sort of runs, there's sort of two of them that I've crammed together. So typically what I do with this, we're running a transform agri-food series as part of the source certain strategy. And typically what we do is this is focused to a particular part of the value chain. So usually it's the farmer, someone in the middle or the, or the retailer. I've kind of crammed the two together today and so they kind of run in, in parallel. If there's anything as we go along that, and, and this is meant to start a conversation, it's meant to start a debate. This is not full of answers and solutions. We do have some tech of our own, but I'm not here to say it's a silver bullet. If there's anything as we go along, just interrupt. So who is source certain and what do we do? So I'm a forensic chemist, so the, the, my co-founder um, in the TSW business developed, I'm not sure people are familiar with the term gold fingerprinting, but he developed the capability of forensically linking gold back to mine of origin. Over the 12 years of the business, we've invested, uh, well, substantially every year in, in effectively the modification and, and development of that technology to apply to just about anything. But in the food context, it, it's pretty much any food stuff. It can even be a processed product um, in terms of a batch of process, process, uh, a batch of processed product. What Source Certain does is through real verification of provenance, we connect consumers to where their food has come from, building confidence and trust. And so my headline message from a Source Certain perspective is it's we eat the actual food we buy. And there's lots of talk about data, traceability, and it's all really important to the food industry. But we actually eat the food. Can we rely on the information that's on pack? We fit into the verification piece of it. We're only a small part of the solution, but that's the bit that we do. Our technology, we call TSW Trace, which is after the name of the original business. It's effect effectively real provenance. So we use a, a chemical fingerprinting method to effectively map locations and then link it back through a verification process. It's actually, so we have a fully functioning forensic and analytical chemistry facility in Perth, and that's actually how I met Charlotte over 10 years ago. We actually purchased an ICPMS, which we've still got actually, and we've now got three of them, but yeah, three years ago, that's how, I, that's how I met Charlotte for the first time, was actually inside that technical role that I had. Some examples, just to, I'm not going to spend too much time on the tech, but linking conflict gold back to its mine of origin or establishing whether it has or hasn't come from its claim origin. So for those that aren't familiar, the US regulated around, called Rule 1502, which was an amendment to the Dodd-Frank, that's the conflict mineral rule. And that's based around the uh, simple premise that anybody that accesses gold or conflict minerals, which is gold, tantalum, tin, tungsten, 
from the conflict zone, which is effectively the Democratic Republic of Congo and then any country that touches it, they have to disclose to the market that they're doing it. Now, there's then an audit process that is undertaken, which effectively is a paper-based supplier audit. So has it, have you got control measures in place that enable you to identify if other material has entered the supply chain? Most of them do do that process. We've seen, or every year we're working on very large investigations whereby gold claimed to have come from other countries actually comes from the Congo. And so we've got one on the go at the moment where effectively the gold's going up to a European country, then via China, and then coming back into the market. Aboriginal artwork, so ochre's back to a very tight geographical location. A really a very active part of our business at the moment, which is around aquaculture, but specifically prawns. It's not just about where the prawns have come from, is it wild caught versus farmed, which is an important question, but it's also, if it's come from Asia in particular, what's the path by which it's gotten to us? Has it gone through a facility which, you know, there are slaves working their kids, for example? Most, most of our retailers invest quite a lot in checking this stuff. The challenge they've got is they, they invest time and effort and go up there and do the supplier audit, but then the material that comes doesn't come from that location. It's come from one of five or six that sit behind it. Eggs, which was actually our catalyst for commercialisation, so we were asked by the industry to see whether we could tell the difference between free-range cage and barn. Not to get specifics about it because the definition of those is challenging enough, but generally speaking we came up with the ability to do that. It was a somewhat of a surprise to us from a technical perspective. We tested and retested. It was very robust, so we actually flipped the switch on commercialisation and said, OK, I think from a tech perspective, there's not too much in the food marketplace that it won't work with. So we basically, that was actually led to the formation of Source Certain. We've got an over 10-year sort of history in wine and getting wine back to specific vineyard location. Physical evidence, which is actually where my my core expertise was, I'm linking forensic evidence back to um, a person of interest, pretty much any food and, and as I said, golden diamonds. If anyone's interested in any of the other applications, we've got a, a whole presentation dedicated to the tech and, and what we've done and how we use it, just give me a shout afterwards. I wanted to start, and the reason why I've chosen this one is because I'm not working on it. There's a couple of local examples which, which we're in the middle of, so we haven't been able to really use it. but. Is anyone familiar with this? I actually mentioned this, I think, at the conference which I spoke at last week. But this is the Russell Hume. Anyone familiar with the story here? So Russell Hume, any, any Brits? No. Unbelievable. Do you not let them into Queensland? Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> OK, so Russell Hume is a very large meat manufacturer. So delivers to Jamie Oliver's restaurants, Weatherspoons, very, very large. The, the objective of this slide is to just show people how fragile this system is. January 12, they failed an inspection. They failed because there was what appeared and what has later been proven, still subject to some courtroom battles, I suspect, but a systemic changing of the use-by date. So stuff was sitting in storage, obviously weren't moving it, they weren't comfortable with having it in the warehouse, so they changed the date to basically get longer time to sell it. It's actually led to a really robust debate around safety and use by date, which, to be honest, I think is, it's kind of like, hey, there's a fire over there, we should look at that fire. The brutal reality is they were changing the date. January 20, they were banned from selling meat by FSA. Not all of their facilities, but a large number of them. In Feb 5, they resumed some production at the Liverpool site. Feb 16, a whistleblower came out, that's how the first thing started, was a whistleblower. Another whistleblower came out into the media and claimed substitution, so they claimed, the claim is that foreign beef were being sold as British. February 19, the company entered administration. So the, the, the message here is, even if you're the biggest meat producer in the UK or one of, the consumer can end this very quickly for you. Now. Typical of um, 
this particular seminar series, I actually delivered to senior executives of food businesses as well. And one of my questions I always ask is, you know, is there too many old men running this business? And I'm not doing it to be smart. I'm doing it because most of them have never actually gone to the supermarket unless their wife's asked them to. But there's, from an investigation point of view, there's always more to it than that. So what's always hard to know is, did the whistleblower come first or did the investigation come first? Uh, if the investigation, it turns out the investigation comes first, I suspect that there was some consumer interaction. It should be noted that there's been no food safety ramification to this, which, like I said, the, the Russell Hume business has run the very strong argument, which I think is, look, there's a fire over there argument, that the FSA actually overreacted here. Maybe they have, but off the back of the Two Sisters scandal with the meat as well, I don't think they really had a choice. They had to get in the game. They had to, they had to restore some trust in the system, and that's what they were looking to do, I think. So, yeah, I don't know. I, I suspect there was some interaction there, but, you know, there are actually plenty of examples like this. So, can anyone think of an example recently here in Australia around maybe berries? So, think about that, right? For me, and I don't think I was being entirely opportunistic, but I was raising capital for the source certain business right off the back of that scandal. It worked really well for me. <laughs> but effectively what happened there was hepatitis was detected in the supply chain or in the berry, or claimed to be, which I think it was, but it was definitely there, definitely reported. The Nana's, which was owned by, by I think, Paddy's Foods, pretty much didn't enter the public conversation. When they did enter, they blamed the consumer at one point and said, oh, no, no, you must have contaminated the bag, right? It's a bit classic 101, what not to do in a crisis. Not only did all of those berries come off the shelf, but consumers stopped buying frozen berries entirely, right? Which isn't rational, uh, and there's a slide a little bit later on that makes that point, but they stopped, stopped buying them. The Nana's part of that business is sort of a small percentage of it. The Paddy's Food, which is a listed company, went from being able to distribute a dividend to not inside a year. So it knocked them that badly inside the one crisis. Now, all of that's very doom and gloom, but my message is reasonably simple, and that's that the consumer trust part of this is actually really fragile, and it's more fragile than it's ever been before. And, you know, what I'm keen to do is, you know, have a, an open discussion about what the solutions to this might be. I certainly advocate that the key pillar that sits underneath it is a broad transparency policy. You know, we've got to be more open. We've got to, we've got to be more honest with where our food's coming from. The marketplace is pretty confusing. So you, you take the, the scandal of the slide before and then you layer it with this and you've got what is a really, really sort of murky, confusing place. So you've got gluten-free water here. Um, your lifestyle defines who you are, so why limit your choices? Clara, gluten-free water is, is about creating choices for your health and well-being while giving you absolute peace of mind that your life choices are being respected. I mean, uh, like, that is, that is absolutely ridiculous and should not have any place on a bottle of water. You know, at its simplest level, you know, one of the questions... So we actually we sent an email to Clara, because why not, um, and said, do you filter out the wheat protein or is it just naturally not in there? You know, do you spin it? Maybe you spin it. I'm just interested to know where the wheat is, you know. Um, and we got a standard, somebody from our communications department will be in touch. Never heard from them. You know, silica rich. You know, again, I, I don't like my water to be gritty. It's sort of not high on my thing, you know. And I also don't, I also don't drink water for its trace minerals. Like, I have food for that, you know, and other sources of, of minerals. Um, I'm not sure if you followed, there's another, the trend, Californian trend at the moment, especially amongst the richies, is raw water. So not processed in any way. And it's like, and, and they argue it's because all of the treatment that goes into production of bottled water is taking out all the trace nutrients. You don't drink water for its trace nutrients. You, know, you drink it for hydration and, and you just think, you know, they're paying $100 a litre for this stuff. I haven't got that picture up here. It's, 
And it's, you know, for those of us that, and I'm guessing there's lots of scientists and lots of reasonably intelligent people, for us, we look at this and we think this is ludicrous. Ryan, how on earth does this ever get traction? But you go, these are in the supermarket, right? And uh, Camilla, you're, you're from a marketing background. If you're selling it and you're getting extra value for it, then tick, tick, tick. You know, I, I, this one, for the scientists in particular, oxygen-rich drinking water. I mean, anybody know the solubility of oxygen gas in water, right? Oxygen is about, what is it, 16 divided by 18. <laughs> it's about 80-something percent oxygen water as it is, right? But what they're looking at is there's a market that hear it and think, ooh, that could be good for me, right? And there's enough of them to do it. The big challenge, though, is this one. You end up with this situation, right, where people are getting paid for information, right, and you end up in this information asymmetry place where it's not fair. You know, they don't have the capacity to analyse it themselves and make that decision. This sort of stuff is up. Now, did anybody see this in the media? This is an Australian example. So 98% of the milk that's produced here is what? Free range. So you've got someone that's decided inside the marketplace that we're going to add some information which actually doesn't do anything to attempt to attract some more value. Now, I, part of me, the commercial guy in me, the pragmatic guy says, OK, if they can make that work. The problem with it is that when people find this stuff out, it becomes a broader challenge for the food industry. And so, you know, we're starting to see, and there's some slides a bit later on talking about this, that we're, la we're losing trust in the information that's been presented. Anyone got any other examples that they can think of off the top of their head? We've got, there's another water one, fat-free water. There's actually a whole slide that we've actually got a whole presentation now of slides which have water ones on them, to be honest. Yeah, and I've got a slide a little bit long which I think drives it. I think what, what makes people explore these claims and what makes marketers, you know, we, what marketers and, and sales guys sort of explore the claims. But, I mean, it's about their whole objective is differentiation in the marketplace. The, the challenge we've got is that we've moved past quality as being the differentiator and it's now more value-based, right, which is more difficult to assess in the, I think, the average interaction time with a label for something like six seconds or something as a consumer approaches it. It's making it very difficult. Now, the, the, the challenge is, is that when it breaks down, like the slide before, a bit extreme, I accept, but couple it with this sort of stuff and you've got this pretty messy marketplace, which, is, which I think is driving the, the, the mistrust. I then advocate that probably transparency is the solution. So, you know... If this place was, space was, and, and we'll talk a bit about eggs a little bit later too, but if this space was a little bit more honest, you know, this sort of stuff probably wouldn't happen. What I find interesting is none of the other brands tackle this because they're focused on their own message, which is, again, a bit marketing-focused. But I then ask the question, whose job is it to stop this stuff from happening? You know, is there someone from the... It depends how much you've paid for your health star rating. <laughs> no, no, it's not. It's like the heart tick of approval too, it's um, or actually more, more generally than that, it's certification schemes as a whole. Um, and when they start, I believe they all have the right objective and the right end game. It's as it moves because they've got a commercial model um, that it gets difficult. I cannot, I, I, I'm on the record saying this, I dislike the half the, the, the star rating and I absolutely despise the new country of origin labelling because I think it's um, about a decade old, to be honest. You know, you flip over the back of your apple juice and it's got a bar chart, right, and it's got, like, the tiniest little sliver of colour in the bar chart, right, which indicates the amount of Australian product that's in there. All of our data and all of our research says that that actually doesn't in any way help the consumer. The consumer wants to know where the rest of the 99% came from. You know, not that 1% of it's Australian. And, and I don't know that necessarily the regulator can fix that for us because I think that their expectations going far, the consumer's expectations moving faster than the regulator can ever react. But it's a really good question. I mean, I'm interested in that. I mean, I, when I look at what is effectively a sugar drink... Right, and it's got a five-star rating 
on the front, I think, hmm, I'm pretty sure every consumer can start to distill down that that doesn't have the value that it was probably intended to. I'm assuming that's what's driving your question. So the question then is, is that so in the trans? So the, one of the objectives of those types of things is it's, it's a, it's a, and there's a slide about this too, but it's a regulatory-driven transparency. You know, it's a or a scheme-driven transparency. Let's give some information in a standard format that might be able to help the consumer. The problem is, is that unless it's verified, what the hell's the value of it? You know, and that's what's happened with Milo. I think is there's, there's, there's a couple of bits. The first bit is is why did they ever think that something that is effectively 80% sugar could ever have, you know, an, a five star or whatever it was rating? Then they've, they've obviously coughed up and said, okay, we'll do the right thing. But who let it happen in the first place? You know, the the the, the guys that organised the scheme. Someone's obviously said that's okay. Then it becomes about an enforcement piece. You know, if you go through the supermarket and try and make that mean something, who does it? So what, what about modern consumers? Um, so this is a piece of food label research, very commercially done, so I use the caveat that, that I don't know that you'd ever try and peer review publish this type of data. Mind you, peer review publishing consumer does hard anyway. Modern consumers do not trust the brands or product labels. They will switch brands if the information is clear. Consumers expect transparency. What I will say is our data lines up generally with that. Consumers want information. Consumers may not necessarily access that information, but they, they want to know it's there. So if you make a claim, they like the idea that if they wanted to go and look for it, you're willing to be honest about it. We've seen some really good case studies um, in the US in particular with sort of QR code type interfaces, which basically demonstrates that the first time that they see it, they may click on it, but it's very rare for people to go back and continue to check that information. I think it's an insight, not necessarily the end solution. I, I generally believe that transparency and traceability and a few of those other key food things aren't competitive and shouldn't be competitive, but I'm very aware of the fact that certainly as this, this moves, that there's going to be early adopters that are going to win out of finding a way to be more transparent with their consumer. A really good partner of ours, Centre for Food Integrity in the US. These guys have been doing, and again, there is a caveat here, this is industry funded, right? Always mindful of the general social licence of scientists to make broad sweeping statements. <laughs> this is industry funded, but I actually think that their work is probably the most practical in the marketplace with respect to consumer trust and its and the model by which you can regain, build consumer trust with transparency. I think the key finding from these guys this last year is that we've got a really dangerous food disconnect between farmer and the consumer. And we're seeing that in our data locally, but as you'll see, we're also seeing some stuff in the marketplace that probably demonstrates that the retailer is seeing it too. So why connect with the farmer? Um, this is a piece of Canadian data. Effectively, what it's showing you is that, you know, in terms of general trustworthiness, farmers sit at the top. I always like this slide because I kind of fit into two of these categories. Son of a farmer and a scientist, I think we've done all right. I'm very disappointed. Any lawyers? I'm very sorry. <laughs> I didn't even let you get on the page. But just shows, I mean, I mean this is a fundamental job, you know. Why, why do we want to connect back with the farmer? Why is that important? I think there are a few, few levels to it. One of them is this general trustworthiness as a profession. It's not all good, though, like there are some sectors inside the farming space that aren't particularly well trusted. But generally, this is a driver. The other driver, um, of course, is just the fact that we very quickly industrialised our food system for probably all the right reasons. You know, we all want enough quality, safe food to eat but we probably discounted the importance of real people inside the chain and, and real people deliver trust, right? I can tell you, I, c I can provide a system all we like that, hey, it's trustworthy, hey, it's trustworthy, but really, trust is a relationship. It's an emotional thing. It's with a real person. Really important, right, especially as we explore technology as potentially the mediator for this. So... This leads to kind of the underpinning question for me, which is, you know, what happens when we do turn all the lights on here, right? We've got this problem that needs to be solved. 
we've got um, the value chain, you know, and you know, I like to ask generally, but but what is the biggest challenge for agri-food? Right? I've kind of explained what I think one of them is, and that's consumers and their trust. I think the other one sits at this end, right? And when you really, really get down into it, and this is, I guess, one of the benefits of having come from that farming background is they're not profitable enough. They can't make enough money, right? What does the value chain look like, right? Now, the retailers do get the, the big lion's share, right? And they probably should. So I'm not here to say they shouldn't because they have a pretty big bricks and mortar network and a very extensive logistical play that has to be driven around the country to make that happen for all of us. And we love the convenience of blueberries all year round and we love all of that, right? So that's real, right? But, but are these guys and these guys actually close enough together to fix the first thing that I've highlighted, which is the trust piece? <coughs> Who should do that? Who should turn that light on and try and bring them closer together and be more transparent so that we don't have all this other rubbish happen? Now, they are playing. Now, I don't know if anybody's noticed. Has anyone noticed this? Hands up if you've seen this. Sorry, just, yeah, so we've got real consumers that have noticed it. Has anybody heard Coles and Woolworths talking, they do the general rhetoric around the fact that we partner with our growers and we care about our growers and all of that stuff, especially when we're smashing the shit out of them about milk prices or whatever it is. But has any, have you heard them talk about this at all? Right? And I don't think they have. I think, you know, this, from my observation, is this is a test. They're trialling. This isn't, I haven't seen this in every store on every product, Right? This is, this, is a, this is a Coles example and this is a Woolworths example because I'm trying not to beat either of them up. But pictures of farmers, right? Now, did anyone see a story five or six years ago in the U, from the UK? They did this too, right? But what did they do? They didn't pay the farmer. They put the picture on the pack, but the food didn't actually come from there. <laughs> it was a marketing play. Look at our farmer. Right? So I suspect the cautiousness with this might be driven a bit by that, right? You can't, going back a step to where we were in the presentation before that, you have to be authentic with all that stuff. You cannot get away with that type of stuff. And so what I think we're doing here is, because this is not, an, not a cheap thing to deploy at 700 stores across the country, especially, you know... They've got a pretty integrated supply chain, Coles and Woolworths, but, but you still got lots of suppliers, right? And lots of, you know, pictures of David, or it might not be David, it might be Chris, or it might be whatever. So, but I see this as them looking. Now, there is little doubt that these guys are in front of this curve, in my view, um, because they're collecting data on us all the time. I mean, I've seen some of that data. It's extremely sophisticated, but they have a different objective to what maybe the rest of us have with respect to the deployment of transparency and trying to build more consumer trust. And that's obviously, we need our consumers to trust us so that we can pay our shareholders. That's important because we need strong supermarket businesses here. But it might not really be where the community needs it to land. And, and so I asked Camilla the question this morning, you know, where, who, who lands somewhere else and then pushes a compromise between the two? I think transparency is the solution there and there might be a regulatory part, there's going to be a, a policy part and there, there's definitely going to be a technology bit, but it's something, this is moving. There is something going on here. So what's the solution? Um, the solution is definitely to innovate. There is, uh, there is tonnes of different tech and solutions out there. I'm not saying that we shouldn't continue to create great technology, but there is lots and lots out there. And I've, been, I've had a really exciting sort of 12 months certainly inside my business because we've kind of sat in the ag biotech space and we've sat in the medical cannabis space and go and have a look at the markets and those two are just going amazingly well. The challenge I see though is there's a whole lot of technology trying to find problems, right? Not solutions, 
delivering solutions in response to a problem, you know, and, and not to... I'm picking a little bit on the drone guys because I've seen so many presentations about drones in the last 12 months, and it's cool. I love that. The first few I saw was like, that is amazing what they're doing. And it's got a really important place because it's about profitability behind the farm gate. Can we reduce costs? Precision agriculture is the same. But it's not just about that. It's not just about drones. It's not just about precision agriculture. I, I would argue that this whole value chain piece and the social piece is actually more important, right? And, and any of the value you invest on farm or create on farm doesn't get through without the rest. You know, you're not going to get paid for it. And so, you know, the challenge that I see for the, the agri-food space, and I, I prefer food business, the food sector, because it's all food, whether you're an ag guy or a food guy. The challenge for the food space is how do we put all this together into something that actually looks to fix these really big problems. So, you know, here's some of the examples that we see, drones, precision ag, blockchain, um, plant protein, insect protein. Anybody have a view on that? Who thinks that we will eat less meat? Yep. 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 Cost, the cost, the environmental cost, not necessarily dollar cost. Sure. Yep, that actually tastes good. Yep. Yeah, I agree. I, I, actually, I actually think we will eat less meat. We will eat plenty of um, plant-based proteins in particular. And I have a, 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 and a disclosed interest as well. I have an interest in the insect space because I, I think that's fascinating. I think there's, there's a really interesting place, not just from the point of view of food production um, or protein source, but also to take waste material and produce feed for those cows, right? Um, and so I'm really interested in it. I, the, the piece of data that I'll share is that I think the driver is probably going to be millennials. I don't believe necessarily, although we are seeing at the coalface from a supply perspective, a very strong growth in vegan-based um, sourcing businesses looking for products for the vegan market. I don't, re I don't think we're necessarily going to produce a huge new generation of vegans or vegetarians. I don't think that's going to happen. I think that we will eat less meat. And so I think we'll call them more flexible. And I think it's driven by the fact that... So we did a piece of research trying to understand the millennials. And the piece, the fundamental thing that we learnt was that, that, you know, what do they care about other than themselves and their mobile phone is they care about what appears to be there and probably self-centred in a way, impact on the environment. We, in a couple of the pieces of information we saw, and it's anecdotal more than data-driven, is we're seeing those millennials who are staying at home longer, probably too long, influencing their family eating. So, you know, with a couple of the, the, the survey participants said, you know, my son or daughter or whatever is X, and they're saying, I don't want to have meat every night. So one night a week, they're not eating meat. Now, what does that mean? Well, that is a load of beef that doesn't need to be produced for this country, right? How do we go from here to there? Um, some pretty big questions there. There's also some really interesting food safety ramifications around plant-based protein. So I didn't subscribe to the turmeric kind of antioxidant shake thing. And it's not really a plant protein example, but I'm going to use it as a demonstration. If you're from a food safety point of view, you're interested in, you know, microbial contamination, heavy metals and pesticides, that type of thing. If you're using part of a teaspoon in your food, the risk, regardless of what's in there, is actually going to be low. If you're taking tablespoons at a time, all of a sudden, those limits, which were generally OK, matter. And the same is going to apply to plant-based proteins. Effectively, we're producing these concentrates of these powders that, we, that are going to enter the supply chain. So there's a food safety infra, infra infrastructure challenge. Um, there's a regulatory sort of challenge. Um, but generally, I believe we will eat less meat. The area I spend the bulk of my time is around authenticity, but traceability lends itself nicely to there. So blockchain, and there's a whole slide on blockchain. I think uh, we have everybody in the ag tech space wants to talk about provenance, which is interesting because nobody wanted to talk about provenance five to ten years ago. 
everybody's talking about it and everybody's claiming that they can do it. And the reason is because of that connection thing between consumer and where their foods come from. I'm challenging, I'm from the West, I'm challenging our bulk handler. Is bulk handling actually, is there a future in this, right? And we can have all the economic arguments about making sure that there's a supply out and everybody gets paid and all of that. We can do all of that, but my, my question is not, my, my statement is not change it, but my, my question is, is, does it make sense to look at it? You know, and I said before, you know, I always ask the question in these sorts of executive type workshops that we do in this space, and, uh, with all due respect, there's, they're all old men running some of these companies and it's a case of, you know, do they really, and I don't, th that's fine, but go and ask, right? You know, I, I don't in any way represent, I am a millennial, but just, right? But I don't in any way represent what they do because I don't behave like that. But, but there are plenty of people that have gone and asked and it's just about learning and, and, and doing it. But those businesses are looking out at what they think is the horizon and I don't see it. I, I see... I see there a need to be a transformation in the way in which they distribute food and, and distribute information, and they don't see it at all. Now, they might be right, but so might I, and if I'm right, they go off a cliff. And so it becomes a question of, you know, what makes sense for them to do from here? Blockchain. <laughs> this is the noisiest part of ag tech at the moment, actually, tech generally. Blockchain has a really, really big challenge in front of it before I talk about some of the real benefits. But the, bit, the first one is they've got to get themselves, it's got to get away from Bitcoin because the, the average punter merges the two together, um, which will be fine, I think, as long as Bitcoin's okay. But if Bitcoin goes down from here, there's going to be a whole heap of hurt here too because they're, they're just smashed together. What is it? Um, probably telling people how to suck eggs because I had to learn this too. <laughs> Distributed ledger. Um, so in an ag, ag context, what does it mean? There's an opportunity to transact efficiently inside the value chain. So people get paid faster. Um, you know who you're selling to. All of that's really good because that type of transparency is really important from a risk perspective. You know, knowing who's doing what is certainly the first step from a bad actor perspective and a food fraud perspective. You can, and this is where the real value piece is in an agri-food, you can put traceability information into the blockchain. So has anybody seen the IBM example, IBM Walmart example? So they did a, I think it was a mango. They did a mango with their traditional traceability and it took like six days to get from, from where it was sold back to where it had been grown. In their blockchain solution, it take, took 0.6 of a second or something, right? That shows the power of it. The challenge with that example is that if you built your traceability system properly and it was integrated properly, it would actually achieve the same thing. What blockchain does is it drives the stakeholders together to collaborate and share information. That's also its challenge. So this will never work if all the stakeholders aren't using it. So in the context of something artisanal tea, coffee, pretty much any diamonds, whatever it might be, right? You know, tea's a good example in, I think it's Kenya, there's 150 or 350,000 farmers, right? That's a lot of sources of your food that you need in the chain if you want to do provenance. So this has lots of challenges. Now, the benefit. Lots of people talk about it as a disruptor. I don't, I think it could be disruptive. I think that the technology itself has the potential to be quite fundamental, actually. It's kind of like where the internet has ended up. It'll create disruption, but it won't be necessarily the blockchain. It's going to be the information that we actually put up there and, and how we share it. I think it has immense value, but we have to be really realistic about it. And so from a traceability point of view, it's about what information needs to go up into the blockchain, right, and, and who's going to access it and what's the value in it. Really noisy space, definitely has a place, but we need to keep the sceptics on it. Just from our point of view, we announced just this week a partnership with Origin Trail, which we did a pretty extensive search for a blockchain partner um, on the general acceptance that we think it has a place in the supply chain space in agri-food. Um, we settled on the company Origin Trail. There's a whole range of reasons, which I'm happy to chat about afterwards, but, but we've just signed and we're about to do a pilot which effectively connects our technology with the blockchain, and the whole objective is 
we don't eat the data, right? We eat the food, right? That that effectively sits underneath the data. We work on the food, and our whole idea is to try and build integrity into the supply chain data that sits in the blockchain. It's real. It's about real provenance. I want to go back because I want to focus us on where we need to get to. Consumers, these are just so complex, these supply chains now. We've driven that as consumers. So the retailers maybe influenced us into driving it because we are generally manipulated by these big brands. But, but they are complex and it's because we like cheap, we like convenient, we like it all year round. We love all of that stuff. How that is done is a web of supply chains from all over the world. Consumers want to know more about it, so we're seeing any interest of interest in Brisbane. Has there been a sort of move towards the farmer's market here too? Yeah, so any idea why? Yeah, is it a price thing? Yeah, cost, is it a freshness? Yep, so it's a quality thing. Um, is it because they think it's the farmer and they're closer to the farmer? Yeah, and, and I think that we've got, a, we've got a little bit of consumer data under that, but not enough to be conclusive that it's that. But I think that's a main driver is it's about them wanting to feel more control over where they're buying their food from. We'll, I'll also say that those are also subject to pretty bad fraud, those because there's value there, right, to be gained. And so you've, we've, we've done a, an investigation where effectively a pretty dodgy fruit and veg was dumped into that market promised as something and not sold. But the message doesn't lie in there because that's fixable if we're willing to work together to fix it. The message is, is that they want to be closer. Yeah, there is. Um, and I, it's hard, isn't it, right? Because the last thing you want to do is take away that option, right? By, by, and I think the answer lies in the fact that the retailers are already looking um, I think they're already, they, they, you know, we all talk about farmer's market and all of that, but these guys have noticed, right? Um, I think, because what, what we'll see, I think, if they, as they explore this, is you'll see them talk more about what they do to make sure your food's what it is because they have the infrastructure to do it, whereas the farmer's market doesn't. And so, because that's the thing with transparency, right, is that, you know, the, the retailer turns the light on here, Right, and it spreads into the farmers market because people do go, will shop at both, right? And so it becomes a question and answer thing. You know, oh, that's interesting. I'm not sure. Uh, that's that's this price in the supermarket. How is that possible? All of it, but there's no it, there's no silver bullet solution to it. it, it it's going to lie. And I'd like to I'd like to see some more data underneath the real driver for those guys. I'm wondering whether it is a sophisticated consumer thing or a lack of trust, or is it both? Are there any of those non-sophisticated ones that have defaulted there because their friends are doing it? Um, I think there'd be an answer in there somewhere. It'd be interesting to know. Like I said, I'm ch I changed pace because I wanted to come back to this. This usually sits very closely up the top, and this comes from a really good colleague of mine, um, Charliana, in the US. Um, this was this blew my mind when I saw it the first time because I'm a scientist and it's just outrageous, right? Consumers are two to five times more likely to trust a brand if they align with the value. So to use eggs as an example, right, and then we can talk about all the other promises. I can argue till I'm blue in the face that there's no nutritional difference between free-range and cage eggs, right? I can argue till I'm blue in the face that there's less environmental impact. All of these things, right, it's a value thing, right? I need to align with some sort of value proposition and then there's at least the first building of the trust. This, which this is old, this data, right? It's this exact statement that I believe drove all of those claims that we're seeing. It's not about quality, it's not about safety, it's about value. The values are irrational and tangible things. It's the stuff, extreme example, that we're seeing on the water. So, some examples. Free range, natural, organic, sustainable, fair trade. So. I always, so I use eggs here, and Camilla and I chatted about this this morning, so Camilla gets to hear it again, but how, out of interest, how many people buy free-range eggs? No, sorry, no, 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 change that. How many people buy cage eggs? No, no, here, I'm, I'm one, I'm one. Which is often the case, I have to say, that I have to put my hand up first before anybody else will put their hand up, because you prior, killing all those chickens. <laughs> no, what I'm interested to know is 
if I present to all the free-range egg buyers here, what information have you used to make that call? Right? Don't need an answer. If I was to present some information for free-range and cage, just use the two, and let's say it's a scorecard, right, really simple. This is the space that I have as a chicken. This is my mortality rate. This is my impact on the environment. This is my price, right? If we were actually transparent with that information, would we be where we are today with free-range eggs? I don't know the answer, but I suspect not. The cage industry, now the egg industry, hasn't defended itself well here at all, right? You know, this has happened on their watch. The cage guys are trying to scramble and, and get some of it back. But I think that if we were more transparent about the whole system, not just, you know, it's the, the goods and the bads and all of it, that maybe we wouldn't have ended up here. So um, how this happened in Australia was... Jamie Oliver came to Australia with Woolworths and effectively overnight changed the whole landscape of egg production here because he said to Woolworths, you've got to get out of cage eggs for all the reasons that he prosecutes, which is mostly ethical and welfare-based. Changed the whole shape of it. Now, all value-based, right? There's a whole heap of scientific stuff in amongst this space that hasn't even seen the light of day or it has seen the light of day if you're another researcher and you want to read a paper, um, but consumers have never seen it. Now, I don't... I buy cage eggs, right? I don't care what eggs people buy. What I care about is, one, are they getting what they pay for firstly, and are they actually... Is it a real choice or is it a default choice? You know, what's driving that? And can we learn something from that in terms of fixing the broader problem, which is this trust in the food chain? So I always like to give an example. So here's an Australia, a West Australian example. Did anyone hear this case? So this is a substitution issue or a mislabeling issue. This particular brand was fined a million dollars for labelling eggs as free range when in fact they weren't. Now, this was a good outcome for them, right, based on what they actually got paid. They still came out in front here. What do you reckon the fraud for the, for the eggs that were part of the court case, that's not to say there was a spill on the front end of it in particular, because I'm sure there was, what do you reckon the fraud is at the retail end for that? It was about between, depending on the pricing in the market, because it can range up to 50 to 100%, depending on specials and stuff, it's about $16 million that consumers paid that they shouldn't have done. So my question is... We went after Ella, but what about the rest of the stakeholders here? You know, my question is, how was, and all of our retailers, did you, do you guys, you probably don't have them here because eggs aren't typically, we actually get Queensland eggs to WA, but it's unlikely that you're getting them here, but what role do the supermarkets have here? So a question I always have is, how was the buyer incentivised? You know, he got really good quality, free-range, cheap eggs. You know, is there a bonus linked to that? Right? I'm not making an allegation, it's a question, right? Because the consumers paid $16 million extra for these eggs, right? And we wonder why we have this broad consumer trust challenge. Generally, there isn't too much, you wouldn't have said, the big food safety scandal. So um, everybody that talks about food fraud, and I've been in this space nearly 15 years, everybody wants to talk about milk powder, which is this one here. We don't talk about milk powder anymore because everybody knows about melamine. But, you know, this, this particular one in particular interests me. This is an organic product, so it was a filthy, dirty grain product that had been dumped into a market. It then got greenwashed in Malta and sold as a premium organic product about the other side. Um, and the purpose of this slide is there's just plenty of these stories. The horse meat. Probably the, this runs around every slide that I've done. Um, this food space, and go back to the very first slide I showed with Russell Hume, this food space is emotional, it's irrational. Um, but it is the marketplace. It is real. Um, like all of these emotional relationships, you know, the reaction when it goes bad is often irrational and it's catastrophic. Why do we want connection with the farmer? Because we want to get back to that stable trust relationship. 
getting into opportunity. Consumers want line of sight to where their food comes from. The story of the food is grounded in the source, so there's not too many promises that enter the market that haven't actually been created by the producer of the food. So whether it's organic, whether it's a location promise, whether it's natural, in inverted commas, whatever it may be, it all comes from that provenance piece. It comes from the source of the food. It is uh, all of our data, but also all of the data in, from the US says this is coming, this transparency thing, if it hasn't already. The, the key thing is going to be, and, and, and this is the headline kind of point to the big brands in particular, but also all the stakeholders, is who do you want to turn the light on? Do you want to do it in a controlled way yourself, or do you want to rely on Jamie Oliver to come in and turn just the corner on, right, and show everybody how bad that bit is? I've had this conversation with the seafood industry. They're all um, advocating, you know, more transparency. You know, I was talking to some of the guys in the West. I'm like, that's good. You know, I like the fact they're talking about it, but you can't cherry pick. You know, you've got to you've got to be willing to embrace the whole thing and actually look at the whole piece and say, okay, I do want to share it. You know. Most consumers don't know that if you buy an Australian peeled prawn here in Australia, it has been processed in Thailand or Vietnam. So we export it, it gets processed, and then we import it. It shouldn't come as a great big shock that maybe we import back more than we send as well. But I don't know that even that's the big It's an interesting story, but I don't even know that's the big bit. I don't think most consumers know that actually they, buy, they, they see the Australian bit and think, OK, what it should... I'm interested to know if you put under big letters, this has been peeled and processed in Vietnam, whether they'd still buy it. Different types of transparency. This links back to some of the tech stuff. We talked a little bit about regula regulated, mediated. So what we've got to do, the big challenge, and, and you know, one of the main reasons for the talk is how do we do this? You know, what are the different ways? The regulated approach is, uh, you know... You've got to do this testing. You've got to report this. You've got to do what... And, you know, Rule 1502, like I talked about with gold. Tell us where your gold's coming from. Let's be more transparent. What's the challenge for a regulator? They're not nimble enough. They're about... They, they, they react because they are driven often by the bad guys um, and they try to fix problems, which is fine. What does the consumer want? I think the pace is too fast for the regulator, but they are a really important part of it. The technology mediated transparency is really important. Ultimately, that is where blockchain sits. That is its key application, is to mediate transparency. But it won't do that without information. So what information goes up? So I leave, I, I sort of settle on the really big questions here. What do we share? What don't we share? Which is really important because, like I said, you can't cherry pick these things. When do we share it and how do we share it? There aren't answers to this. But we can see the retailer playing around, but there's a massive gap here. This all ties nicely into this broad concept of social licence. So let's connect and communicate. There is only one authentic story. Um, if you can't share it, change something so that you can. So this is a message I deliver to farmers. You know, they say... I feel uncomfortable about applying all of that roundup. Okay, that's good. Why do you do it? Because the guy that sold me the roundup told me to. Maybe he needs to, I don't know, but I always said that instinct in him and her or whoever is probably right. You know, there's something to that. The opportunity, and this, is, this, this particular slide comes, a little bit modified now, but this comes from um, a, a similar themed presentation that we did around Australia and its opportunity in the marketplace. So everybody will hear, and one of the drivers, I think, for this whole interest in provenance, which then leads to this whole hype around blockchain, is we hear a lot about Australia and agri-food, clean, green, look at all our promises and all this sort of stuff. I'm much more cynical and sceptical and say, yes, we definitely do have all those opportunities, um, but we are in no way safeguarding those opportunities against the risk that is happening around sending crap to other countries. So we say clean and green and then, you know, I'm the son of a farmer. I'm like, there's nothing green about what we do 
you know, effectively the soil isn't soil, it's a medium to hold a seed and we then apply enough synthetic nutrients and chemicals to grow a crop. Now, that's fine, right, for that bulk model and stuff, but, but it doesn't really line up with clean and green and so let's just be honest about it and authentic about that particular promise. I also think that, you know, natural, organic, GM, conventional, right, and, and I, I always put GM in here because... I spoke at an ag biotech conference last year and I get lots of opportunities like this, which is, you know, and one of the guys said to me, why don't you talk about GM, you know, because, you know, we need, to, we need to have an open conversation about GM and food. And I'm like, it's sort of like politics at Christmas time or religion. Um, you kind of, we tend to avoid it because it's so polarising. It's like anti-vaccine. You know, we tend to avoid it as scientists, but the reality is, is that that's the problem, is that we do avoid it, right? We have a substantial opportunity with the tech developments around CRISPR and new GM to change the base of that conversation. We need to train scientists better to communicate. We need to do all of those things, but we do have another opportunity to have that conversation. And it's about the same way you connect with a consumer, right? It's a value argument, right? So instead of talking about the fact that you've spliced a gene out and you put it in here, talk about the farmer and what it means to them. Talk about the fact that it makes them a sustainable business. Talk about, you know, Hawaii and, and what it did with their fruit. And, you know, there's lots of good stories inside the GM. I'm not an advocate for all GM, but there's a role for that as well. GM, if we go back to the social licence, GM kind of went off the social licence cliff. Right? And when it came off, and the US have invested heavily in trying to bring it back because of their corn industry and soy industry, when it went off, it's been really difficult to get it back. And so the reset around new tech, I think, is really opportunistic. I always say to farmers in particular, and you know, I'd have this argument with my dad all the time, I don't expect these guys to come to here because I think we'll run out of food, right? But there wouldn't be anything wrong with these guys telling their story and maybe moving just a little bit, right? So instead of just blanket applying every fertiliser and chemical, you might be a little bit more cynical and open-minded about what you're doing. I know that because I see some of it and I think you're doing that for risk, you know, around yield. You're not doing that because it actually needs it. And I don't... Maybe it still needs to be done that way. I don't know. But what I'm finding is people aren't willing to even have the conversation. This is generally a provenance piece, right? So all of this stuff ties back to where it's come from. And so we tend to use this slide to then explore, you know, what's your opportunity as a business with respect to your source story? How do we push it through the supply chain? Like I said, GM, you know... If we were to, if we were to try, so the vaccine debate's a really good example of this. We're about to have it. We're about to have a similar one, or a similar issue around opioids because they've gone off the friggin' cliff too. Because you know, we overused them. We're about to, and I think not far behind that. Not related, but is probably antibiotic resistance and its use in agriculture. Um, all of these are issues which we've just got to get more open about because all of them are going to cause really big grief to this, this whole chain if we don't. The point for this slide is <coughs> GM, for farmers and producers, it's a critical way of surviving. That's their view, probably true. Governments need GM for food security, or at least that's what their view is. Consumers are like, no, I'm not eating that crap. It's going to give me two heads. Right? You, you could not get a more disrupted value uh, proposition across those three um, areas. Very quickly, I'm not spending time here. So our solutions tend to sit on. So typically our solutions are implemented inside supply chain. We do do a lot of investigations you know, when things go wrong, but what we try and do is work inside a business, with a business, inside their chain to protect against substitution, so stuff coming into their business that hasn't come from where it was claimed to be, but also protect them. So if they're in an international market in particular, we protect them against substitution in that market, which might lead to a market access problem. So classic example is meat product in Asia, 
detects a detected residue, for example, whether it be a pesticide, whatever it might be. Worst case, you know, go up into China and, you know, there's probably five to ten times we would estimate Aussie beef sold up than is set up there than, than is even sent. So you've got massive amounts of other product. You know, residue, worst case, you know, like mad cow's disease. Something awful detected in a meat which is claimed to be Australian. What we do is we provide some first-line defence there to say, nope, it's not your product. We also have a pretty extensive experience in the management of that crisis communication, which is simpler now than it's ever been, which is, you know, pretty much comes down to be honest as soon as you possibly can because the social media part of that communication is so quick to take your head off if you don't. But generally, we sort of sit inside those. Thank you. Really interesting picture to talk about value chain. These, I'm guessing, are normal, but just smaller. <laughs> right, where's that to be about? What's it going to be about? 20 bucks a kilo or something. But just shows the value piece. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast from the IFE. To stay up to date with our podcasts, please subscribe to our channel. You can also visit us on the web at qut.edu.au forward slash IFE. And we're also on Twitter at IFE underscore QUT and also on Instagram at IFE.QUT. We really hope you enjoyed this IFE podcast. Thank <laughs> you.